Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, we're talking about the green agenda and how it's funded and what to do about it. Now, this show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. Swan Bitcoin is putting on a conference, Pacific Bitcoin. This will be the biggest Bitcoin-only conference ever. It's going to be on November 10th and 11th, 2022 in LA, California. Hang out with thousands of Bitcoiners from around the globe. They've already got a really big speaker lineup ready and you can catch them on the main stage you can ask questions and hang out at the conference and events throughout the week this is optimized for fun with sports games music photo opportunities and high fives this will be just one main event of an overall la bitcoin week which we which will be full of educational opportunities meetups co-working and parties throughout the week so come and join us it's in november this year pacbitcoin.com If you're in the Bitcoin mining world, go and check out brains.com. That's brains with two eyes. They have content on their blog that teaches you about Bitcoin mining and energy. They also have an insights dashboard that you can use to keep track of what's going on in the industry, the hash rate and all kinds of statistics, as well as profitability calculations. And of course, they have Brains OS Plus. This is custom firmware that you can install on your ASIC machine. Check the site to know if your model is supported, but it can give you much better energy efficiency. And there are people getting 20% better joules per terahash, and you can use the auto tuning feature as well as being able to pay 0% pool fees if you're using slush pool with Brains OS Plus. So that website is brains.com. Remember, it's important to keep your keys secure. And with CoinKite, you can get the cold card. This is a very well-recommended and highly renowned Bitcoin hardware wallet or signing device is the new term. And you can use this now to secure your coins without touching the computer. And so what you can do is use an SD card to move that information back and forth. So you can initialize that wallet and plug it into the wall, not to the computer, and you can set up the wallet. It'll write you can write down the 12 or 24 words and then you'll transfer that data into your computer using wallets like Spectre, Sparrow, Electrum or others. It's a really great way to improve your security in Bitcoin while also learning about how it works. So go and get yours at coinkite.com and use the code Levera for a discount. So my guest today is Ben Pyle. He is writing for Climate Resistance and he's got his blog as well as a YouTube where he is commenting and analyzing what's going on in the world of the green agenda and the ESG people. So I think this will be an interesting conversation and seeing as the energy and Bitcoin worlds are colliding, Ben has a useful perspective and insight. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Stefan. Great to be here. Yeah, Ben, so I've been following your work. I enjoy it. I think you do a lot of great work in terms of challenging the green agenda and some of your written work as well as I have seen uh, a couple of your YouTube videos as well. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself just briefly in terms of what your focus is nowadays and in terms of what you're writing and speaking about? Yeah, um, well, the, the green agenda is this quite a broad thing. And in the past, I think there was much more of an interesting discussion about what the green agenda was. And it was sort of looked at the history of the green movement and and was quite sort of clear about trying to get to the bottom of what kind of world greens want to create. But um, in the 2000s, I think that sort of I, I say it sort of descends to science, right? That that people are very interested in what science says, and skeptics and people who wanted to sort of uh, ask questions about the green agenda were, were harried into accepting science as the only vehicle for for that discussion. Now, okay, we we can have the technical debates about how much climate change is 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 happening and and what its causes are and what the consequences are, and those are very extremely important things to to discuss. Um, but but there's a gap in the market, so to speak, for that old, more old-fashioned view of looking at environmentalism and the green agenda as a political thing, aside from its technical and scientific claims. So um, that's why I started writing on um, that. Mainly took the form of a blog, uh, and then and then later on writing a few more articles with different people. Um, I've been producing a few videos, um, and and for a while I worked for. Godfrey Bloom, who uh, I think you've you've interviewed before, it was great fun to work with, and who brought lots of ideas to the to the criticism of the green agenda. And he he was very sympathetic to that view as well. And, and what I think what he used to say is the green the green issue is a political dynamic. He used to say we need, and he he, he was we were very much agreed in the need to unpick 
what green what greens claim because it's not just like greta saying um how you know how you know people are dying that's the the whole truth of the matter and that so therefore something must be done to stop all these people dying i i say if you look not far beneath the surface surface they want to reorganize society and it's not clear to me that that's going to produce any environmental benefit whatsoever, even if climate change is happening, even if quite radical climate change is happening. Uh, as, as other people have said, I think maybe they said it too forcefully in this respect. They're green on the outside and red on in the middle. You know, they're, they're communists in this green camouflage, which is a fair enough criticism. And, and, and people shouldn't be afraid of making that. But I think, I think there is more, more complexity to it than that. But, you know, we, we can't take their word for it. And we can't take scientists' word for it, that they're just acting in good faith on the basis of science either. Of course. And as you rightly say, a lot of the debate and the online discussion is this idea of, oh, the science is settled and therefore... Now we need to do all of these economic central planning things. And there's not enough of a discussion about the political and economic ramifications because just because the science says certain things does not necessarily mean this is the economic answer because they're very different, aren't they? Yeah, they're, they're, very, they're very different. And so, I mean, my, one of my favorite examples is, I mean, they're, they're, they're so keen on banning the car. You know, they, they've put banning the car far ahead of, of delivering any any sort of anything that can sort of reduce CO two emissions in a, in, a, in any meaningful way, right? So, and they sometimes pretend there are like for like replacements for cars like EVs, right? But EVs are going to cost people the the better part of a. A, a year's salary, perhaps more for quite a lot of people. A lot of people depend on, like, the economics of car ownership, certainly in the UK, probably elsewhere as well, are such that I can pick up, or I could pick up before the green agenda really started going, I could pick up a, a second-hand car, maybe 10, maybe even 15 years old, for for maybe a week's wages, maybe two weeks' wages, right? And then I could, you know, I could get it legit, I could get it roadworthy for, for, for not very much money, and and that would that would enable my whole family transport. So someone who's got a couple of young kids, they've got a couple, they maybe got elderly parents or other elderly residents they need to look after. They could be all, you know, they they could have transport, and it could be their holidays as well. Let's not forget the leisure uh, opportunities that are created for or almost nothing in historical terms. Just a few, you know, just a few weeks worth of work, and so denying that opportunity to people is probably going to have a much greater consequence for them than any sort of claimed uh, damages to their life from storms from you know even if you even if you multiplied the number of storms 10 or even 100 times perhaps that's unlikely to interfere with their lives in any any meaningful way but the greens i argue are worse than climate change for people because now that family cannot take its children to to its sports activities and to its social events. It can't go and visit grandma at the weekend because it's the public transport is always going to be far too expensive for most people to afford on a regular basis. It, it means they can't take their relatives to hospital and other appointments. I mean, it's just they're imagining a utopia in which there is abundance, or they're promising a, a utopia in which there is an abundance, um, which, as we're seeing now through prices and, and supply crises and so on, is, it just is not going to be delivered. And so, um, yeah, I, I think green policy is worse than, uh, you know, climate change policy is worse than climate change. And that's that's the future we need to watch out for. Very well made point. And I'm curious, Ben, as well, in terms of your focus, are you focusing mainly on the UK or are you seeing yourself as commentating and writing about the global green agenda, would you say? Yeah, I, I must make apologies because sometimes I do speak too much to the UK audience or too much to the European or even perhaps the Anglosphere audience. I, I, I try to to keep a balance between those things and and but it's it's very it's very tricky when the sort of what you experience of green policy is direct it's on your doorstep it affects your life personally but it very much is a global movement it's an attempt to build institutions above democratic control or, or, or above um, the the level of a, na a nation state such that the nation state is uh, essentially obliged to this sort of uh, to these global institutions um, and so ordinary people have no access to that decision making process um, and I, I think that's that's part of the that's part of what we need to unpick with with green ideology and with green politics is that 
they, they've had designs for global political institutions that use the environment as the source of their political authority and ideas about how the environment is being, degra- is, is being degraded as the source of their, their political authority. They've been doing that for a very long time. So if you go back to the, 19, the late 1960s, um, really picking up in 1972, attempts to use simulations in exactly the same way, um, you know, forecasting the collapse of society, the collapse of civilization, not on climate change, but in exactly the same way that they now use climate change as the story, to urge hugely significant uh, changes to politics and to, to society and to the, to the economy, uh, all of which predictions, by the way, have failed. So this is an ideological movement that has survived it's the failure of its claims to truth, to, to science. It's predictive, you know, it claims it claims to have authority in science, but all of its testable scientific claims have failed. They failed pretty early on, you know. So so famously, uh, people like Paul Ehrlich were were, were saying that that um, Britain Britain there would be no Britain in the year two thousand. Um, and that the India, the India would be would be you know uh, dissolved, or I, I'm not entirely sure. I can't quite remember. But these predictions all failed, and they were all they were all designed around this these simulations and these prognostications. And you, you know, if you can find it, if you can find it online, it's a really amazing video in 1972 at the launch of the United Nations Environment Program, which is a project of some green billionaires, almost precisely the same kind of billionaires that we've got doing this stuff now. Um, and it looks like the, the only thing that has really changed, apart from the clothes and the quality of the cameras, because it was all shot on film, is the issue of climate change. So you've got, you've got all the world leaders lining up, apart from the Soviet Union, incidentally, interestingly perhaps, um, all the world leaders standing up to say exactly the same thing. We've got n months to save the planet. We've got two years to save the planet. Um, if we don't do it now, then we're, we're all going. We're all going to perish. That momentum towards global political institution building has not fa- faded, but all, uh, but the story has. The, the the scientific claims have. I think we've got to we've got to be cognizant of yeah. that. We've got to remember that. And as you say, there have been many catastrophic predictions made for decades now, and these people seem to not lose credibility over it. So they make this crazy prediction and even well-known politicians, so even in the US, uh, AOC has made this prediction that, oh, you know, I can't remember. It was something very catastrophic that it's going to happen in 12 years by 2030. You know, and, mm. and then that day will roll around and why are they not losing credibility? Is it that they are not being challenged on this, that nobody's criticizing and saying, Wait a minute! You said this, you know, on in 2018, you said this, but now it hasn't happened by now. Or you said this back in 2000, and it hasn't happened by now. What gives? Yeah. Well, I guess I think maybe the one answer is that they are they have they have sort of ultimately set themselves up as the source of authority and credibility, right? So, and uh, I mean, you, you can't just declare yourself the, the the source of all authority, of of course, but there is, and it's. It's hard to give a number to it, but there are just immense resources available to that to that movement. I mean, it's unstoppable because it's. I mean, the United Nations Environment Program, as I mentioned in 1972, was 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 uh, bankrolled essentially by the Rockefellers. And I don't want to get conspiratorial about it, but it was it was the likes of them, uh, Morris Strong, who was a Canadian oil tycoon, who was very much this sort of global political. Player who, who who went around um, sort of forming all the for all the agreements. So and, and even today, a lot of the research I've done shows that that there would be no green movement whatsoever anywhere in the world without the backing of really, really, really uh, wealthy individuals, and only a couple of dozen of them, right? So 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 for I mean the the the, the biggest one. We, we've come across so far is Jeff Bezos, who has given, who's created this Earth Fund of, of I think, ten billion dollars, through which he he, he funds um, various NGOs, and and so behind every big outfit that's lobbying every single government at every single level, at uh, the lo- local governments, we found people, we found staff being placed in 
local council, uh, uh, you know, senior parts of local local government uh, offices being placed by NGOs, right, to sort of deliver, I don't know, um, uh, you know, anti-car policies in this is in Britain. The same is true in the States where uh, billionaires such as uh, Mike Bloomberg, you know, very much an anti-fossil fuel guy, anti-car guy, you know, he, he, he uses a lot of his money to tell you that you can't drive um, or, or that um, this city or that city should become car free, but he has got two helicopters and three or four private jets. You know, so so there there is an awful lot of money coming from these billionaires, who's uh, billionaire philanthropists who think they've got a better idea about how society should be organised than than anyone else. Now, I I'm careful here. I don't think it's a grand scheme of billionaires. You know, like the guy in um, Simpsons, the you know, sort of the the, the archetypal villain. I just think that they Mr. want Burns to secure stuff, yeah. their Mr. Burns. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think. I think that they just want to secure their legacy because there are these new hyper accumulations of capital, um, like BlackRock and 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 the others that that that, 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 that are behind that, that that you know these fortunes that billionaires have have amassed, which make, makes them slightly different from their predecessors. And I I, I just think they're they're vanity projects essentially, and there is an but there is a there is a sort of movement that has that has developed to service that that need that desire. Um, to essentially, you know, in in uh, a few hundred years ago, it would have been statue builders, right? But now it's now it's this sort of ecosystem of NGOs that depend, in turn, on the benevolence of 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 billionaires, right? So they say, well, we, we, you know, we'll we'll help you solve this global problem, this intractable global problem, and everyone will remember you as this this amazing man who who saved the planet. I think I think that's the real dynamic, rather than necessarily plots. But it, into the bargain, and I, I would point it out, the likes of Bloomberg made huge amounts of money. Out of lockdowns and and a lot of the a lot of the adjacent policy agenda, the, the climate agenda, and so I think we need to look at that. And if it's not a distraction from from your question, I point out, I, I you know, I made a, a video recently which looks at a couple of billionaires. In fact, it was a British billionaire Christopher Hone and and uh, and Mike Bloomberg, who financed the ESG movement. Um, you know, which is this sort of uh, group of shareholder lobbyists, and I o- over that time, over over the over the you know the mid 2010s to the end of lockdowns, um, they increased their portfolios by this extraordinary amount of money, um, and and they they were very active in persuading companies, uh, well not persuading, forcing companies to adopt ESG policies and, and, and at the same time were, were running campaigns that sort of uh, pushed investors towards ESG uh, in ESG products. So, so I, I think there is an element of profit-making in, in that too. So I'm not ruling that out either. So, the, I, so I'm saying on the one hand, statue building, and on the other hand, it's just great investment, or it was a good investment to, to to fund green NGOs. It's a good point you make. And I think it's interesting because there's one angle of just when it's a government mandate, right? So governments are regulating and saying, no, it must be this much renewable or this much wind and solar, and, and we don't like coal and natural gas, as an example. Uh, but there's another critique, which is saying, oh, well, it's actually mm-hmm. the market, right? So there's sort of people who are coming out and saying this idea that, oh, see, it's not even government regulation. It's the market deciding. But in reality, there's this weird dynamic where there are these big funds or big uh, money management companies, so the Black Rocks, the Vanguards, the State Streets of the world, where they essentially, because so many people are stacking in ETFs, basically they're buying ETFs, these large companies get a big say into what happens in the companies they invest in because they typically get a seat at the board or they may say, okay, uh, and then this person can sort of dictate how the company grows or what investments and projects get taken up. And so it's really interesting because for years we've heard almost the op- the opposing argument as well, right? So you hear this argument from the green people as well. They say, oh, look, for so long it's been the oil companies who are funding mm-hmm. the propaganda against the science and won't, won't the people just listen to the scientists because they're saying we need to stop the emissions and decarbonize and all of these things. 
but it's very easily forgotten that there's all this money in the green world as well, isn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and to to I mean, you make several points there. But the, to the first one, I would say um, the the use of corporate governance, so to speak, as 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 in reality. Uh, government policy. I mean, uh, the, the the UK government is completely complicit in using the financial markets to to uh, execute what it could not deliver by legislation, right? So that uh, and and you can see that in the Bank of England, which were, which uh, uh, I, I could go into the work of the Bank of England to develop ESG metrics, particularly particularly focused on the E, so as to starve. I mean, it's explicit. It you, you know that the intention to, to to use the financial markets to restrict capital to fossil fuel companies as a explicit goal. They did, and because they knew if they passed a, a law saying "thou shall not buy petrol" or that, that prohibited the market, then they would just be out of office within uh, a few weeks. But if it's sort of done, organised on the basis of the market, exactly as you'd said, then then it's my money, my choice. You know, and it's all, it's all these people making their own investment decisions, not people who have been prodded into into making these decisions. And I, I think there's an investor in the States who's just set up a new fund which is going to counter this, that's going to say that's going to say, unfortunately I've forgotten his name. Um do you, do you know Vivek the guy? Ramaswamy, I think. He's right. so it's like this idea of um I can't remember the exact name of the company, but that's also that's one of the points I've heard he has made, which is this argument of like the vanguards, the state streets and the black rocks of the world are controlling a lot of companies. But the irony that this is the point he's making is that basically they are pushing companies in a direction that the underlying investors of those funds would not agree with. So as an example, you might just be a firefighter or a policeman or something, and your pension money is being invested by the Vanguard's BlackRock State Streets and some of these other fund managers, and they're driving it in this very yeah. greeny ESG direction. But you, the average guy on the street, didn't want that. You just wanted to be able to buy a cheap car, as you said, to be able to take your family out or to feed your family to drive to work. And so there's this big injustice there that uh, I think a lot of the Zoom class laptop employee, the people who can just work on their laptops and work online, they don't see that because they don't have enough of a connection out to the real world and people who are actually you know, doing the jobs that are not just on a laptop. Yeah, and that really speaks to your to the other point you made about the alleged fossil fuel funding, because because it doesn't exist, right? So but the 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 guy I think used the example of the firefighter, and he's got his pension, or you know, in, the, in Britain there's a lot of people who worked in the public sector who 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 had um, these funds, and they were approached by like the likes of Greenpeace or, or, or someone saying, hey, all of your pension, uh, for all of this pension fund is in um, Exxon and BP and Shell, and you, you've got to divest, otherwise everyone's going to everyone's gonna hold you responsible for destroying the planet, right? So, so um, and then they put it to the, to, they put it to the fund holders, they say, well, well, should we move, should we move this into, uh, should we move all the money into an e ESG companies? And so your firefighter there may be saying, well, hold on, this sounds a bit shonky to me. But what, what's going to happen is that he's going to be overwhelmed by all of the, or either all of the other members, or some of the organisations that intervene in that process. So these are these organisations, the green organisations funded by the interests we've already described. And there's there's quite a quite a number of them who who will who will just sort of overwhelm that criticism. There is no counter. There are no counter movements that exist funded by big oil, right, to provide individuals, ordinary people with the information about what ESG is and, and how it will or will not help to solve the climate crisis. So so that guy is completely on his own. And the, the story of the uh, oil-funded denial machine or you know or propaganda machine whatever is 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 just a is just a, a myth and a lie i mean if you you look into it a, a number of those organizations have have made these claims and they've pretended to you know they, they've claimed to have done research linking conservative think tanks to to interests like the Koch brothers or so, or something and it and and then it just amounts to these dribbles of money you know maybe a, a, a few hundred thousand for a, a year for a you know, for five or six years, for a range, you know, for 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 that think tank's range of outputs. Whereas, um, if you if you count the money 
that's available to green NGOs that and that, that green uh, it's just orders of magnitude greater. I, I'm at least three orders of magnitude greater. There's absolutely billions funding the the climate change movement to intervene in the market in this way, and there isn't anything on the other side. It's 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 totally asymmetric. Of course, and yeah. um, I think that's that's going to have con- economic consequences. Back to the show in a moment. Now, are you looking to take payment with Bitcoin over the Lightning Network? Or are you a builder in the Bitcoin space and you're looking to spin up your Bitcoin or Lightning nodes? Voltage can help you. They have the leading enterprise-grade Lightning solution for Bitcoin builders. So you can now integrate Lightning and it doesn't have to be an afterthought. It's really hassle-free. You can instantly spin up your nodes on the website and just go and trial it out on the website. You'll see how quickly you can spin up your Bitcoin, your Lightning node, or your BTC Pay server node. So get a node up and running. Go to voltage.cloud. So as I'm sure you're seeing if you're watching the space, events at exchanges and lending platforms over the last few weeks have been an important reminder of how important it is to take control of our Bitcoin keys. Now, you don't want to leave your Bitcoin with somebody else. You might have your withdrawals blocked when you need your Bitcoin most, or you might have your Bitcoin caught up in someone else's insolvency. So this is where Unchained Capital can help. Unchained offers concierge onboarding. This is a personalized service to guide you through setting up cold storage and withdrawing from an exchange into your vault. So they ship you the hardware. You are walked through the setup over a video call. They will help you with withdrawal and cover questions you have. There's some ongoing support. And if you've been putting off taking your Bitcoin off an exchange, this is a simple way to get it done sooner rather than later. So today, go to unchanged.com slash concierge. Use the code Levera for a discount there. And now back to the show with Ben. And on the topic then of pushing back, so I can imagine that Maybe this is a hypothetical world, but hypothetically, should there not be politicians who are trying to push back on that? And maybe we're starting to see some of that now, but I'm curious your view, if you just look at this whole energy debate, green debate around the world, why is it that we're not seeing more politicians who are actually talking about this and actively, proactively trying to push back? So again, it's quite it's quite difficult to get a global picture, again, because I only speak English as well, so I can only speak about the ang- Anglosphere in the main. So, there, I mean, there, there's been a, there's been a, uh, like a hollowing out of democratic politics across the West. Like, so since the Cold War, there, there hasn't been a difference between political parties. And they've, they've, so there's been a, a historic detachment from the public. The government, the government has sort of detached and all, all, all political parties have, have somewhat detached from the public. And, and this, so this green agenda in the UK, and I apologize for that being British centric again. The rise of the green agenda coincides with a with a you know so the green agenda is going like this. The number of people voting was falling for a long time. So so people were not engaged in politics and 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 you know at the same time you've got the institutions like the the European Union being built and you've got the UN especially in the post post Cold War era the UN sort of really really seizing the moment and in in sort of capturing policy agendas and political agendas and and i guess people just sort of thought well that's okay the un and you've got experts doing their job and and you've got the you know the the, the ngos the lovely ngos who are just trying to make everything nice uh and so so no no one really noticed that there was quite a fundamental political change going on there was some degree of utopianism and quite irrational ideas were being planted in the you know the top strata of political establishments and so yeah i I, so i think we're seeing the fruits of that degeneration uh coming to bear now when we're you know so famously in germany not famously uh in germany now we're seeing people warning that critical industries are about to go under completely uh, Germany's uh, all, all, all but sacrificed its auto industry um, of course this is sort of marred by the this is the point I'm making is somewhat mooted by the fact of the war but the other fact is that Germany chose its energy path right and the, and it was saying that it it could be self-sufficient in in wind and solar PV and isn't able to and Donald this is something that Donald Trump was warning them of um, I believe a few uh, years ago that they were increasing their energy dependence on on Russia so the green agenda has hit something of an obstacle in that now European in particular Western European countries are unable to say, 
the, the green infrastructure that they built was not dependent itself, did not itself increase dependent on fossil fuel imports, right? So the, the green agenda, all it has done is, is exported manufacturing uh, to the east and materials production to the east and uh, I mean, that's great for that's great for people elsewhere. I mean, I'm sure it's helped lift a lot of people out of poverty. And in global terms, it's probably a, a, a good thing. But but it, it shifted its energy production elsewhere as well, and then claimed um, these are European countries uh, across the board. They claimed that they had succeeded in reducing their emissions. Look, they, they, they and they claim we have decoupled uh, resource use and economic growth. But it was just a, it was just fancy because uh, as as we can see now you're not making anything and you're exporting all now you're in this moment of crisis so I think that's going to create some realism certainly in Europe where they have just sort of reclassified natural gas as green energy much to Greta's annoyance right she's she's having a little <laughs> a little uh, and for years on. after they had been going against gas for years now they've turned it around and I think it's very interesting you point out as well with Germany because. They had put in a massive amount of money, effort into trying to go renewable. And this is now coming back. And I suppose there'll always be arguments about exactly what's caused this problem recently. They'll, they'll Even with that, I think last year in Texas with the failure in ERCOT, there were all these different competing stories about what was the truth of the matter. And, you know, people were saying, right. oh, see... At first, there was a blaming of the wind and solar. Then it was sort of saying, oh, no, the um, the fossil fuels failed. But then there was also an argument that because of all this environment, they weren't able to winterize or um, actually sufficiently upgrade their grid to protect the fossil fuel energy generation. And so it's kind of, yeah, I'm curious of your view on what's going on in Germany in terms of how much of a percent renewable did they go and what caused their problems recently yeah i can't i can't remember the exact proportion actually but they were they they were they they um announced the closure of their uh, nuclear power stations in the wake of the fukushima fukushima uh, a- accident even though it, it it actually in in if you take a step back it was a it was a vindication of nuclear energy i mean that i think that power plant is older than me uh, certainly, I think significantly older. I think it's a fifties or sixties design, um, if not a fifties or sixties building. So, it, it, you know, it withstood a, a tsunami. Yes, the top came off, but but it but it withstood. Otherwise, withstood a major major catastrophe. So Germany, I think, at the last record, it, it was coming up to have it. It was it was getting close to having um, spent half a trillion euros on green energy, solar and wind. And yeah, as you say, it has very little, little, little show for it. And um, yeah, so similar, similar to the, the case in, in, you mentioned in Texas, the problems, the catastrophe was encoded in that agenda. Like this is, as soon as you hit a bump in the road, the, the whole car falls apart. Because because that, that's the nature of of, of green policy, I, I guess. Like that, that, that you could have, you, it should have been possible to predict that that, that there was a, a, a going to be a, an energy crisis caused by maybe maybe conflict in Europe or or maybe an economic situation or or, or any number of things. You know, that, could, that, that there should have been contingencies for. So, um, or that, I don't know what the proportion is. I, I think that. Yeah, that that's coming. That's coming to a a, a big explosive point, I, and we'll see that in the next next few months, if not in the winter. Sure. Uh, and just turning back to UK politics as well, obviously where you're based. What are your thoughts on Boris Johnson's, let's say, tenure and his thoughts around net zero? Because I think he was, uh, even though being a conservative, he unfortunately kowtowed a little bit and went for the whole green policy. So, what are your views on? Uh, what he was saying did it make any sense at all? Uh, that, I think that's a better example of what I was just trying to say, actually, because there are there are Greens now trying to say, oh, he's 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 been ousted because he's uh, you know he turned a blind blind eye to sleaze in his party, and uh, you know he broke the rules and 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 this that, and that's why he's lost the the confidence of the party and the, and the public. Whereas people perhaps more on my side of things are saying, um, well, look, he's 
backs the green agenda. And now people are facing extraordinary rises in, in bills. I threw it three or four times the amount for energy that we were paying a few years ago. And it's, you know, that was already an increase. So, so he, he, he's very much, to most people's view, he has very much put a globalist green agenda ahead of the public's interest. You know, he said he claimed we were going to be the Saudi Arabia of wind. You know, he said green is great, green is good, green is right. You know, he was this was really much very much the flagship policy of Boris Johnson, um, uh, who's a man who who wasn't content to have just delivered what everyone knew he was there to do, which was deliver Brexit. He's a man who needs very expensive grand projet to identify himself with. He needs he needs totems to himself. Again, it's a statue thing. He, he, you know, it speaks to his vanity. So uh, you know, in the in the in the discussions I've been having with people in the debates and the arguments I've been having with people, I've been I've been pointing out, look, if he, if if he had, if he had just done what he was supposed to have done and delivered Brexit, and actually, uh, in in the words of his predecessor, cut the green crap, if I may say so on your channel. Um, the, the, so the the uh, yeah, he, that's fine. Yeah, he he um if he, you know if he'd have not gone ahead with net zero, there's a very good chance he would have had the support of a lot of the public, and that would have been enough to have have for him to have survived the the attacks on him from within his own party from within the establishment media um and and within parliament so so but he he put his all of his capital as it were in pretty much just the continuity agenda you know he, he and, and it shouldn't be difficult to understand um for for a man like him that that people had had enough of the eu for more than just the fact of the EU, it wasn't just like it wasn't an arbitrary distaste for the EU because it was a, a the EU. It was that we were bored of, sorry, more than bored. We we people were uh, fed up with being with technocracy, with being being uh, having our interests um, put second to political projects, big political projects, and, you know, the, the people's interests not being met by ordinary politics. So he, he could have done very differently, and uh, but but I don't think any politician is going to learn that lesson, uh, certainly not his successor and certainly not from within the Conservative Party. I hope I'm wrong. I hope to God that in a few weeks' time, someone who understands that the green agenda is dangerous and toxic to their own career will turn up. I can only hope. Of course. And it's also interesting to see that politicians are obviously not a fan of them, but uh, they are trying to have their cake and eat it too in many cases. So previously, if we looked back a few years ago, they would be explicitly telling us, hey, we're trying to stop fossil fuels or hey, we're trying to make it more expensive. Hey, we're trying to make fossil fuels. You know, And even I think Joe Biden, even maybe one or two years ago, was saying, yeah, we're going to end fossil fuels. And now they're going to turn around and then uh, in Joe Biden's case, go cap in hand to the Saudi Arabian, uh, yeah. <laughs> Saudi Arabians, and say, "Oh, please make more oil for us." And you know, they're, they're they're trying to sort of, on one hand, they caused this problem, and on the other, now they're trying to sort of, sort of uh, paper it over for now, while still maintaining the overall green agenda. Yeah, it's a crisis of their own making, and it's a, it's amazing to see. I mean, Joe Joe Biden's something else. I mean, it's the whole it's the whole collapse in microcosm, and he's he's. I think he was even trying to blame the the people who own the pump stations, the, the petrol stations, where you where people you know where you fill up. He was trying to say that they were responsible, and then and then he's blaming. I think even blaming the public at sort of one point, and 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 just this desperate search for for blame and for oil, and and there was Macron. Explaining to him that his sort of jaunts around the world are going to be uh, are not going to are not going to result in any more oil or or, uh, or, or you know or oil or gas, um, and so there's this it's uh, yeah a real awakening to 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 the to the to the reality of what they've created. Um, I, I mean, I I don't want I don't want it to sort of be too Joe centric either. I mean, it's denial across the board. You know, this is a slow motion car crash. Of course. And I think in some ways, it's what we've seen in recent months is reality catching up with these people yes. because there's only so much green propaganda that they can put out. And there's only so much cost of living and inflation 
crisis that people will take. And I think probably a good example to chat about now and to get your thoughts as well is uh, you're seeing uh, the Dutch farmers, right? We're seeing right. this big protest going and it's in response to almost, it's, it's almost like the every man is rising up against the globalist people who are trying to say, no, you know, we want to control how you produce things. But these people are rising up and saying, no, we're not having it. I, ho- I hope so. Yeah, there's Canadian Canadian truck drivers too, wasn't there? And there was the and and very similar in constitution to the Dutch farmers, and and of course the yellow vests in France um, were the sort of precursor to all of this. And um, I mean, I I hope they just get what they they demand because uh, the the idea of the, the of it turning into revolutions is really ugly, you know. I so and 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 protracted protest movements are just not good for anyone. I mean, I think it was really, really damaging to France. Um, but you, in the case of uh, the Dutch farmers, they're talking about the legislation causing the closure of up to 30% of Dutch farms. So, um, I, I mean, there are lots of ideas about what, what's behind that, including land grabs and, and, and um, you, you know, attempts to force people off the land and, and return it to nature. But, the, the, but, then, but this is making a lot of people have nothing to lose. And, and so the explosive nature of that seems to have escaped the likes of Biden when they, when they go off. And, and this is an interesting point I make, I think, is that whereas the targets that are made so we're going to reduce CO2 emissions, or in the case of Holland, in this instance, we're going to move, reduce nitrogen uh, emissions by, by so much. I, I, as you were saying before, these come with all these sort of, um, oh, aren't, we, aren't we making the world great? Aren't we making the, the world wonderful? Um, the, the, and it will, have, it will create green jobs, and it will create green ec- economic growth, and this, that, and the other. Um, so, that, so they sell all these upsides to the public on the back of this agenda. They say this is going to be um, this wonderful new, new green economy. But only the targets are legally enforceable, right? So, so, only, so you don't you don't get any of the job. You don't get an organisation saying you promised us a hundred thousand green new jobs. Um, so we're going to take you to court, uh, UK government or Dutch government, and in, and force you to make these jobs. You, don't, you what you get um, is green organisations. Uh, in the case of Holland, I think it was the it's called the the environment. Uh, the the mobilisation for nature, I think it was called. Uh, the, uh, they took the the the, the Netherlands uh, government to court to force them to implement the nitrogen emissions reductions. This is this is environmental lawfare, and and you know we see this a lot, climate lawfare, and it's them that's forcing the government's hands because in many senses the governments don't necessarily want that level of confrontation, but those governments have set the targets. They were lobbied to set those targets by the same organisations that take them to court for not uh, enforcing those. 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 Uh, it's a bit like the way the 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 market is used to governance. It's the it's the the other side of that because um, uh, you, you see sort of just as every sort of contract has to be legally enforceable, you see the market sort of creating these things, and then there's always the there's always the iron fist in the background saying if you if you do not. If you do not commit to these these uh, uh, agreements, then we're going to smash you. And and so um, I'm probably straying from your point, but the reality of the political ideology has been is being made. What it what kind of world it wants to create and how it wants to create it has been made very clear in in three very significant countries in 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 Canada and Holland and in France. Um, and they've used the state to try and and stop those protests. But so, gosh, uh, I, I I hope that it causes some reflection before those strikes or those you know those protests become much wider and start to cause real damage to to society. Of course, on the topic of just wind and solar and the viability, sustainability, actually economic sustainability of this kind of energy, I've seen all kinds of different critiques of. Uh, what's going on in terms of wind and solar and how it's being mandated in certain ways, or as we were saying, in a in an ESG way, it's being mandated. I'm curious if you have any critiques on them or anything around uh, battery technology or things like this that you'd want to highlight. Yeah, wind, wind and solar are, are sort of just imagined to be green, 
by this this move. Um, but, but, and there's a, there's an amazing clip of Boris Johnson with his former chancellor in, in go, visiting this sort of very kind of fashionable, probably ESG rated energy retailer in the UK called Octopus. They've also got to have these sort of silly postmodern names like why why would you why would you why would you get a go to an energy company called octopus it's 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 kind of kind of weird why not the energy company should be sufficient right so they they're already very fancy pants they've got a lot of marketing they've got a lot of um trendy sort of design about them um and they and they were sort of extolling the 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 virtues of these uh smart meters um, and they were saying, well, you can you can use these um, smart meters to help you reduce the amount of uh, energy you use and to uh, use your appliances when energy is cheaper. So they're going to get time of day pricing. So the more demand there is and the less energy is being produced by wind turbines, the higher the price is going to be. So if you're poorer, you're going to be on your, your, your smart meter is going to beep when electricity is is rises above a certain threshold and that's it you may not be able to have a shower before you go to work you may not even have your lights on um, because there's no guarantees as to what the price is going to be so it's all very well and good to talk about these great big ways of producing electricity but ultimately it's taking us back to the point in time at which your life your whole day what you do is is organized around the weather which is hardly the 21st century in 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 you know as I'd imagined it when I was 10 or something and 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 that's the reality that's not explained to people though the Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak say isn't it amazing you can plug your char- your, your uh, EV if you can afford an EV you can plug your EV in um, and then the smart meter will automatically turn on the charger at two o'clock in the morning when everyone's when, when no one's using energy. The reality, of course, is that at two o'clock in the morning, all of those smart meters are going to be competing for any surplus energy that is on the grid. And so the price isn't going to go beneath a certain point. So so it, it, they haven't seen any of it through. They haven't thought anything through. Lots of people have been pointing it out to them. Lots of critics in, in, in the press and, and uh, not enough think tanks, but organisations in in Britain, such as Global Warming Policy Foundation, have been pointing out this out to them to a long, for a long time. But there is no representation of those arguments at the sort of wider intergovernmental level um, or the global level. And contemporary politicians are pretty much indifferent to that kind of criticism or debate. They don't really want to have the argument. They just they just want the uh, they just want to appear in nice little cute little videos on Twitter. With the with the trendy energy company saying we're saving the planet and we're doing this, you know, our policy agenda is doing these great things. If you see what I mean, yeah. And so I think it's important for everyone who is cognizant about this to talk about it and try to get more people thinking in a rational way about energy. Because I really think, obviously, this is a, mainly a Bitcoin focused show, but I think. It's one of those things where because of the energy use, this energy debate, Bitcoin and Bitcoiners, advocates of Bitcoin, will, be, will get dragged into this debate. And I think it's important that we ha- have good arguments and actually are able to articulate why a lot of these things are not making sense. And because you know, why these things are not making sense, because if not, then there is a risk of technologies being banned or regulated and of course you know i think from a bitcoin point of view i think it, it still wins either way but certainly it would be it'll be nicer if things are legal and understood uh, as opposed to being forced underground in a way because you know i think it, it maybe even uh, like in an example could even be just the way people are thinking about nuclear or fossil fuels energy that because people have weird ideas about them it's stopping our use of them and as you were saying it's it's going to lead to a less and less people who have access to reliable energy, and that might that might mean instead of uh, young people who are growing up being able to actually study and learn things, they're now stuck without lights, or yeah. you know they they can't go and advance their knowledge and become a professional in some field or work in a certain field because they just lost the opportunity because there was just no energy. Yeah, and and I there's a a growing sort of view from energy realists 
that people should look into, I think, and if you're if you're interested in those those arguments that that points out. So a guy called John Constable um, is sort of doing this in, for, for the GWPF, who I just mentioned as well. And and one one of the things he's pointing out is that really the amount of energy that a, a society uses is a reflection of its sophistication. And that's not to say that you you know you can just set fire to a, a whole tank of oil just for you know, for laughs and that and that sort of registers as a more sophisticated culture or society, but that that there is something essential. To ha- energy is economics essentially. There is a there is a thermodynamics of the economy, and that if you've got a lot of energy, if you're using a lot of energy, the sophistication means that you know there's fewer people working in primary production, and there's more people doing websites, there's more people doing Bitcoin. If you like doing that's those sort of things, right? So so it creates all of these opportunities. Whereas if again you know you're sat around waiting for the weather to change to to have your shower or to get ready to for work or to to charge your 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 car the the reality is you're going to be forced society is going to be forced into a less sophisticated mode of operation so that's going to be much more manual work and much more uh you know manual manual labor and a much less surplus much less profit to go around to do all the nice stuff that's you know all the nice things to make things that that are, that are worthwhile to make life worthwhile so you you know i mean greens are easily characterized as as hair shirts uh, you know, sort of um, very aesthetic and sort of mean, as it were. And uh, you know, they've done a lot to shake off that image. They've done. They've invested a lot of money in well, people like Greta and you know, and and to, to, and slick design and sort of happy happy videos and, and expensive PR. But there is a reality to that. Denying the uh, abundance of energy. And the affordability of energy. We'll just just look at look to your own life and look to the benefits that it is created. Like the if you if you've ever flown in a you know if you go on holiday if you travel if you visit visit family in in other countries um, if you you know if you if you if you go for a day out it all requires enormous amounts of energy and once that's denied to you um, uh, that that's not that's denying all sorts of people further on in in the economy that freedom and that ability to. So uh, yeah, I think I think there's a there's a there's a new sort of uh, realism dawning on on the necessity of energy, and, and that would be great if we if we can get that idea to hold soon enough um, to stop the sort of strange utopian ideas about energy um, taking hold. Fantastic. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Listeners, make sure you follow Ben. He's on Twitter, Climb8, uh, the number, Resistance. I'll, I'll put the links in the show notes and check out his website. It's climate-resistance.org. Ben, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me again, Stefan. Cheers. Show notes available at stefanlevera.com slash 393. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the Citadels.